Hello, good people. I am so glad that you are back with me. In my previous video, I said that this channel was mostly going to be dedicated to going through Joseph Ratzinger's book, Introduction to Christianity, but that I was going to need to take a little detour for a couple of videos and talk about John Verveke because John Verveke has been building an elaborate structure for weeks, actually for years, through his professional work. And it's a very elaborate structure because he's dealing with something very complex, but he has finally reached a point that he's been building toward for a number of weeks. And he's finally gotten to a point where he has a cap on this structure that he has built. It's very interesting. So it's a good moment to kind of summarize what he's been doing and talk about a few points now. I'm going to give a summary that is kind of neutral to friendly. And that's because I'm going to also give another summary that is more antagonistic that comes from some people that I noticed in his comments under his videos. And I want to kind of deal with some of the things they say. So first I'm going to give my neutral to friendly summary before I go into this other perspective that I want to talk about. And this one is going to be very quick and dirty. There's like no way I could even bring in a tenth of the stuff that he's been talking about, but I'm just going to run through it real fast. So he's got this big question he's answering, right? It's a meaning crisis. Why are people in the condition they're in where they're, they will say that they don't have any meaning in their life. They're depressed. They are addicted. They are committing suicide. They can't get their lives together and seem to um, take their place in society with some kind of purposeful and responsible and contributive uh, work and raising a family and all of that. And they're a mess. And they're making a mess of everything in society because the personal meaning crisis is spilled out into a wider meaning crisis in society. It's a big problem. John Verveke sees it accurately. And actually, we all can see it. So what he's done is he's done some, I'd call it philosophical forensics, to kind of see how did we get into this mess. And then the really amazing thing he's brought into this, because a lot of people have done the philosophical thing over the years. Uh, when I get into the Ratzinger book, you're going to see that Joseph Ratzinger does the same thing, using different thinkers, but very complementary to the stuff that John Verveke has said. But the really amazing new thing that John Verveke is able to connect up with this is the cognitive science. Now, there's been a cognitive science explosion in the past, like, I don't know, 20 to 30 years, I guess. And it came out of a hard problem that was suddenly being faced with the attempt to make artificial intelligence. And the problem is, how do we navigate the world? Now, we didn't know this was a problem because we navigate in the world all the time. And, um, you know, we get up and we walk across the room and we go to the coffee pot and we pour a cup of coffee and we walk back and sit at the table and we drink our coffee and we think, <laughs> how hard is that? Well, it turns out that little simple act is incredibly complicated and hard. Who knew? It turns out that the apparatus for functioning in the world is also intimately connected to the apparatus, the cognitive apparatus we have for generating meaning. Why is that? Well, it's because every level of analysis in the world 
at every moment we are faced with a an amount of data that is combinatorially explosive there's no end to it that we can perceive and we cannot use rational processes to filter through it and figure out what the next move is that we're supposed to make and yet because we are embodied creatures and we have to navigate in the world we have to make these decisions on a constant basis and so if we can't use our rationality to figure out what we're supposed to do because there's just too much data to filter through then we have to have a faster unconscious process that gives us insight so that we can move in the world and we are actually doing these unconscious processes all the time every moment reconfiguring neural networks conditioning self-transcendence framing and reframing perception um, relevance realization it's going on constantly in us and we are only just now through cognitive science beginning to understand how it works and um, how we can how we can possibly affect it and use it because here's the thing there it's possible for us to achieve a state where this cognitive apparatus is functioning opt optimally where we're managing the complexity of the world so that it's engaging and we feel at home in the world we have a sense of meaning and we're able to deal with the complexity without being <clears throat> without being overwhelmed by it and yet remaining interested in what's going on now this state of optimal optimal functioning is highly desirable it is what we want when it is working well we can move along the continuum of positive engagement with the complexity of the world into states that are also highly desirable and that are more and that take us to what we would consider to be a higher level of consciousness like wonder and awe and into a sense of the numinous of kind of having contact with the immensity of what lies beyond these things give us a deep sense of meaning oneness and being at home in the world but the same cognitive structure or cognitive apparatus or i think for calls it cognitive machinery can engender negative states as we encounter the complex world we can instead of having the wonder and the awe and the sense of being at home oneness we can end up with states like terror and horror a sense of being unhomed alienated purposeless fragmented and we want to avoid those states at almost all cost so here's the problem in order to maximize the positive states that facilitate our functioning in a complex world, humans have developed psychotechnologies. These are practices with elements that are ancient and cross-cultural. Then, to carry forward and intergenerationally transmit these psychotechnologies, cultures have embedded them and those who are adept at them into mythical stories that protect these psychotechnologies and make them easier to transmit. The containers for these stories and the psychotechnologies are religions. The problem is that religion is something that has been largely abandoned. And as it has been abandoned, people have lost contact with these psychotechnologies. 
For this reason, we have come to call these experiences of optimal functioning with its attendant sense of meaning, religious experiences and when you, or spiritual experiences and when religion is abandoned, then people seem to have lost contact with this psychotechnology that creates a sense of meaning. Another thing that happens because we call them religious experiences or spiritual experiences is that we are attributing them to an encounter with something supernatural. Now that's an important point. That's going to come up later. Okay. What is the case Rebecca is making? Well, for one thing, he's making the case that these experiences are natural and he's giving a naturalistic account of them. Even though he's acknowledging the role that religions have played in developing and transmitting the psychotechnologies and um, optimizing our sense of meaning, he is saying that they come from the natural apparatus that we have. <clears throat> so he's making the case that in order to address the meaning crisis, we have to find a secular container for these psychotechnologies, one that does not require the acceptance of a mythic story and then we might be able to use cognitive science to help us to develop new psychotechnologies. In, for what reason? Well, in order to help people overcome the meaning crisis. Giving people some of the benefits of religion, including a supportive community and, um, and surrounding them with a sense of purpose, to help overcome the meaning crisis. Remember, what people want is to have their optimal functioning of this mental framework of this psychic machinery or cognitive machinery. They want the wonder, awe, the sense of being home and the oneness, and they don't want the opposite stuff. That's the horror, alienation, fragmentation, and lack of meaning. So, to reach these desirable states requires that people be surrounded by some kind of supportive structure that instructs them in the psychotechnologies and helps them in the community put them into practice. Now, that's what Verveke's project is. It's to um, create these new secular containers for these psychotechnologies, possibly develop new ones to help people through the meaning crisis. I hope that that was what you would call a neutral to friendly, even though pretty quick and dirty, leaving a lot of things out, summation of what he's about. Now I want to switch gears to a possibly unfriendly assessment of his project. Okay, I found this underneath one of his videos. It's a comment by an atheist. Now, the atheist was very angry with Verveke. And he went into lambasting him about how he was giving aid and comfort to these terrible religious people, religious people who were responsible for all this misery and millions of death over the whole of human civil uh, human history, and they were the people who had are uh, responsible for the wars and the oppressions of people and the suppression of knowledge and science and. It, they were just the worst people in the world, and there should be, you know, we, we need to get rid of religion, and here you are, John Berbeke, and you're giving aid and comfort to the religious people. And then the guy, after this long tirade in one big, huge paragraph in a comment, then he 
he skips and he goes and he starts a new paragraph and his new paragraph has one sentence, it's his final sentence and he says, I would not want to be in your shoes. I thought, hmm. <laughs> and so I wrote a reply to him and I said, why not? Are you worried that he will be judged? <laughs> so then I went on, I'm reading more of the comments, you know, under this video. This was just a few weeks ago. I'm reading more of the comments and I keep seeing the same atheist name kind of popping up with more vitriol directed at John Verveke. And then in one comment, he said, you are a very dangerous man. And I thought, hmm, this guy might be kind of unhinged. And so, uh, you know, I like John Verveke, but I'm not planning to take a bullet for him. So <laughs> I went in and I took away my response to the guy's comment. And then um, I, when I did that, I saw that there were some other atheists who were trying to mollify him and, you know, get him settled down talking to him. And they said, hey, you know, don't go after John Verveke like this. The guy's on our side. He's really on our side. He wants to get rid of religion too. He's just suckering the religious people in. And I thought, oh, well, that's pretty interesting. So this left me with some questions. And so one of my questions was, first of all, why would an atheist think that John Verveke was giving aid and comfort to religious people? My second question was, why would another atheist think that John Verveke was playing rope-a-dope with the religious people? And then, what would be a religious framework that would also see John Ver Verveke as threatening religion? And then, I guess I could answer whether I think John Verveke is trying to destroy religion. Now, first question was, how is he giving aid and comfort? Well, I thought, Religious people have long asserted that humans are designed for an encounter with the divine. That it is part of our nature that we have internal structures and cognitive structures that are made to encounter the supernatural. Think about what um, Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Sometimes we will say, that we are created with a God-shaped hole in our soul or in our heart. Now, John Verveke might say, well, it's a meaning-shaped hole. Okay, that's fine. But why would another atheist claim that John Verveke is playing rope-a-dope with the religious people? And what sort of religious believer might see John Verveke that way? So in order to answer that, I can't have to put on my fundamentalist glasses. See, this is the thing. If you grow up a Jehovah's Witness and then you work your way backwards through the Protestant Reformation and you become Catholic, you have all these different lenses you can put on to look at things. So I'll put on my fundamentalist lenses and see that a fundamentalist might think that a naturalistic explanation of religious experience would threaten belief in God. So here's how I would think that works. It works in a conceptual universe in which God functions as the explanation for that which we could not otherwise explain. As human knowledge grows, God shrinks. Let me give you a couple simple um, examples of that. For example, um, when we learn about evolution, 
we don't need God to explain the existence and diversity of life. Learn about the Big Bang and the condensation of the gases into the um, various galaxies and stars, etc. No, we no longer need God to explain the existence of the universe. If cognitive science explains our sense of awe and wonder and our sense of the numinous, that means that God is not needed to explain those things. Now, I'm not saying that John Brevakey is saying this, but it seems to be what some atheists are inferring. And I know that some fundamentalists who would view it that way also, they would view it as a threat to belief in God. But here's the thing. That threat only works if that God is a God who functions to explain the as yet unexplained so that naturalistic explanations gradually shrink his domain. We have a name for that God. We call him the God of the gaps. And that actually is the God that most atheists don't believe in. And they are hoping that human knowledge will continue to expand to the point where that God shrinks down until he's just like a fairy tale and not even a nice, robust fairy tale like something for Hans Christian Andersen or the Brothers Grimm, but some sort of Disney-fied fairy tale with no teeth in it. But the God of the gaps should not be the God Christians do believe in because he's not the Christian God. Our God is not the mere explanation for what we can't explain. He's the explanation for what we can't explain and for what we can explain and for explainers and for the possibility of explanation. He's the intelligence behind the intelligibility of the world and he's the mystery behind the combinatorial explosiveness of the world. He's not diminished by human knowledge. He's magnified as more of his power, glory, and wisdom becomes manifest as we learn more about the world that he has created. So John Verveke has magnified the glory of God by showing us how incredibly complex the machinery is that we have so long taken for granted. And I really appreciate what John Verveke has laid out. Now I want to come at this from another angle, okay? Uh, here's the question. Is it reasonable to think that giving a naturalistic explanation of a perceptive sense is the same as giving an explanation, or even worse, explaining away that which is perceived? Let me give you a couple of examples of how this question will work. Okay, so the Bible says that Moses saw the burning bush. He saw the burning bush with his eyes, the same eyes that he saw everything else with. That's a, a straightforward reading of the text. Now, there are scientists who believe, you know, biologists who believe that they can explain how the eyes work, how vision works, the light enters through the pupil and it goes into the lens, hits the lens and it's focused on the retina and you have the rods and cones and the electrical signal goes to the optic nerve, goes in the brain, the brain interprets it. Really, they don't know anything about how that interpretation part works, but let's just pretend for a minute that they know, understand the 
whole thing, a naturalistic explanation of the vision, does a naturalistic explanation of how Moses' eyes work have anything to do with explaining what he saw? No. Now, there's some people who think that Moses might have had mushrooms or DMT or something, and that's why he had that vision. I don't care. I don't care what it might have been that opened the doors of his perception to see the burning bush, because no matter how you explain his perception, you're not explaining the thing he perceived. Then you take Paul on the road to Damascus, right? He hears the voice of Jesus. In fact, the people with him even heard the voice, so they couldn't make out the words, right? I'm just saying, straightforward reading of the text. That's what it says. It's the same ears that Paul was using to hear everything else he ever heard in his life. Now there's some scientists who think they can give a very good naturalistic explanation of how the ears work with the sound, with the sound waves hitting the ear and the, the eardrum and the little hairs in the ear and the little bones and the all that. Okay, so could somebody come along and say, we know exactly how the ears work and we can explain them naturalistically. Therefore, what St. Paul heard could not have been supernatural. You see, that's what we call a non sequitur. I mean, your premise is walking along the road to Damascus, but your conclusion is on a slow boat to China somewhere. The things are, it just doesn't follow. So is John Verveke making the claim that because he can give a naturalistic account of the religious sensations, such as awe, wonder, the numinous, that he has explained away God? I don't think he's exactly making that claim. I think he's saying that he doesn't need a supernatural um, explanation of these things because he is explaining them naturalistically. And I can't imagine him being that careless of thinkers to make a claim like that anyway. But more pertinently, pertinently, I think that this business of whether or not there's a supernatural um, element involved here is not a conclusion of John Fervakis because it's a premise. <laughs> it's where he started from to begin with. He starts from the premise that he is looking for a naturalistic explanation of this phenomena, this human phenomena that he is studying. And that's fine because that's exactly what science is supposed to be. Science is supposed to be studying the natural world. It can't tell us anything about the supernatural. And as science, this work that he's done, and of course, this is not just him. I mean, he's bringing in a work of a lot of other people into this whole thing, lots of other researchers and scientists involved in this cognitive science. I think that what he's concluded from the cognitive science in terms of how this apparatus in the human person works would be the same whether he was a believer. I mean, even so, it's the science would still work whether you are a believer or not, right? So is Jonathan Verveke trying to destroy religion? Well, 
I'm sure he's not because he doesn't want to contribute to the meaning crisis. He didn't have any interest in throwing a whole bunch of more people into the meaning crisis than are already in the meaning crisis. He's trying to help people get out of that. So I don't think he wants to destroy religion. Well, what about this attempt to create a secular container for these psychotechnologies? Um, Paul Vanderclay called that a rival to religion. Yeah. You know, I've seen these things come and go all my life. Um, sometimes they come and stay. I mean, you know, Scientology is still here, but I can appreciate that his project is being born out of love and for the good that it might do to some people. And if he can take some people that are in, you know, a real bad condition, um, you know, suffering from meaninglessness, provide a community and support and psychotechnologies to them that help them to find meaning and get their lives together. Hey, um, I don't see what's bad about that. Will it last? Well, I don't know. I'm kind of doubtful because it's not connected to a mythic story. And um, if it does get connected to a mythic story, then it's not going to be a rival to religion. It's going to be a rival religion. But I, I don't think that's a real serious um, possibility. Meanwhile, as a religious person, while I wouldn't endorse his project, I wouldn't oppose it because I don't really have any interest in trying to make the lives of people who are not religious as miserable as possible just so they're driven by desperation to faith. I don't think that works and I don't think that's what God wants us to do. As far as John Verbeke is concerned, I think to the extent that he extends a loving hand to other people and is generously tries to help them, that my loving and generous God will bless him abundantly. Whether it's in this life or the next, I don't know. But um, that's kind of the way I see it. And you can tell me in the comment section what you think. Now, um, I do have something else I want to do about John Berbeke. I mean, I've been watching him build his structure, and I love the videos that he's done. I think he's a terrific teacher. I really like him. Okay, even though I won't take a bullet for him, remember that. But I have a little structure that I want to build, and I want to kind of use it to interrogate what John Verveke has built, not for the sake of opposing him or in any kind of antagonism or anything like that, but just for the sake of increasing my own understanding. So I'm going to kind of run through that in the next video. I think you'll find that that'll be a lot of fun. In the meantime, until we get together again, treat yourself as though you are someone you are responsible for helping because you are responsible. So am I. And together we are making the world. Thanks for watching. Bye.